This is The Philanthropy Show, connecting and inspiring philanthropy. Welcome to The Philanthropy Show. I am your host, Luann Saraga-Walters. Spotlight on white privilege. This is part two of our three-part series. In our first part, we discussed kind of where we are as a culture in this post-election era and and even pre-election. We had a lot of things that were bubbling to the surface or that were more visible to those of us who didn't necessarily see it before, in part because of our white privilege. And we defined white privilege in a small way in the last, uh, in part one of this series. But in this particular episode, we really want to look at white privilege from a deeper perspective. What is it? How do we identify it? How do we know where it is in our culture? How do we know where it is in our lives? And how do we actually have that honest uh, communication with ourselves or that honest reflection with ourselves of what it is and then going forward, what we can do about it. So I'm gonna start back over again. Our, Our guests today are Jen Yeagley, who is the Executive Director of Community Tampa Bay. We have Sam Abade, who is the Anytown Coordinator, and Sarah Ogdi, the Program Director with Community Tampa Bay. This is an organization that I had the privilege and pleasure of working with um, several years ago and really learned a lot about myself in that process. Met some incredible people, a wide variety of race, religion, Uh, sexual orientation, gender. This is a very inclusive organization. And the reason I've invited them is because they have a a really good way of opening up dialogue between people within our community. And um, so I want to start with that again then, Jen. Let's let's head back to you. And if you haven't seen part one, by the way, please do go through and watch it. It will help give you a little bit of a foundation as we start to really launch further in to white privilege in in this particular episode. So Jen, How do we, you talked a little bit about being able to kind of get a feeling for white privilege. And I want to kind of recapsulate that just briefly, but how do we identify it? What is it? How do you know if there's white privilege or not? I think that, you know, again, it's really um, speaking from the perspective of a white person, you know, it's really just an awareness of the fact that I actually do have a racial identity. So often, um, I think societally, we think that racial identity only refers to people who are non-white. Um, so one, it's recognition that whiteness is a racial identity. And with that racial identity um, come benefits that were created in society before I got here that don't have anything to do with anything that I have done or not done. Um, the world around me exists to to benefit people who look like me um, because of the way that things were set up from the very early days of our society. Um, so without engaging in that, you know, if it's not something I necessarily ever have to think about, but I benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Um, what that doesn't mean, what white privilege doesn't mean is that I have never experienced a challenge in my life, right? When we say people experience white privilege, we're not saying, you know, that because I am white, I have never had challenges or personal struggles or have never, um, you know, been on the receiving end of a stereotype or you know, that's not what that means. What it means is that, again, you know, our American society is set up to benefit, um, and we're talking specifically about our society here today, right? So, Mm -hmm. so in our society here in the U.S., um, because of by whom we were founded and the way that that laws were initially set up, enacted, and continue to be enacted um, over, you know, hundreds of years, um, even as we seek to challenge those and dismantle some of them, the fact of the matter is, that our society is institutionally set up to benefit people who look like me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And when I, you know, so, so, so when as a white person, I can look at that and say, that is a fact. So I do have one, I have a racial identity and it is white. Two, the society that I live in has been set up to benefit people who look like me. That make me a bad person or doesn't mean that I have never experienced personal challenges and, you know, mm -hmm. will continue to experience personal challenges. However, it means that um, there are some things that are going to be easier for me to do, um, easier for me to navigate, um, fraught with, you know, fewer uh, boundaries and obstacles um, than perhaps, you know, my friends and colleagues of color um, who don't look like me, who are non-white. You know, you say this and it makes me think of a, a conversation that I had with, with someone um, recently about exactly that. And his comment was, yeah, but this is something that my forefathers did. It's not something I did. So why blame me for it? Because this, I was joining a conversation of a lot of people that were in that mode of finger pointing. And that's when I said, no, it's not, it's not just like you said, it's not about blame. This is nothing that you've done and set up. And yet we're the recipients as white people of things like that. And it made me think of one of, one of the examples that he used was, well, I've been in a situation where I got passed over for a promotion and a person of color received the promotion and he felt that he was actually the more qualified and so he felt that he had been shunned in that aspect. And I'm sure that we have seen that in some ways, but it made me also think of, well, I've actually been passed over by white people too, especially white men because of that gender ceiling that we hit. And it's interesting, if you're not in that segment, you don't necessarily experience what that is. In part one, Sam was talking about being, you know, as a, as a, uh, a Muslim coming to the country, what would you think, nine years ago, Sam? Is that correct? Yeah. Then, and then having the experience of, of having this kind of racial inequity. Um, and I don't, I, and not being surprised by the racial discrimination so prevalent, you know, in conversations. And then I, have not been a part of that every day, so I've experienced it. It's how do we, how do we, hmm, knowing that it's not blame, how do we still actually anchor ourselves in the reality of what is in order of being honest? Oh God, Sarah, I hope that you can help me with this because I'm really trying to frame this, con this, this, <laughs> this thought well, and you always know what I'm saying, so no pressure. <laughs> But how can we actually uh, have a conversation about white privilege, own it for ourselves and see it without pointing the finger at ourselves and saying, I'm a bad person because I'm white. That's about as frank as I can say it. I don't, I don't know exactly how else to say it. I think there are many layers of things that we can do. And the first one is to acknowledge that racism is real. It is still real and it never went away. And I think for a lot of white people, uh, acknowledging that means taking something away from them, even just in saying that racism exists. And so I think the first step is to, to admit that it's still happening um, and to not say that just because kind of like, just because it's not happening to me doesn't mean it's not happening to members of our community. Uh, so I think that that is a huge piece of it. Uh, I think also, I believe it was Maya Angela who said, uh, once you know better, do better. Mm. So I think Correct. You know, there is there is nothing that I can do for what people who came before me did. However, as soon as I know and acknowledge that racism is real and it's still happening, if I continue to not do anything to interrupt those cycles, then I am complicit in perpetuating that. And then it is my fault because I'm receiving the unearned advantage regardless of what I do. 
And so as soon as I realize that that's happening, every choice that I make to not interrupt those systems then becomes on me because those are now my actions that I can't put off onto anybody else. So in the same way that I expect the men in my life to interrupt sexism when they see it, to interrupt catcalling when they see it, to interrupt sexual harassment, to not speak poorly about women when they're with their male friends, I expect my male friends to do all of those things because I believe that they respect women. And so That's in the a same great way, example. Wow. Yeah, so in the same way, I feel like that is our role once we acknowledge that racism is still real and it's still happening, that then we be, we do become responsible for not perpetuating it. Uh, and so I think we can do that without blaming. Uh, you know, and I think you mentioned, well, I'm not a bad person. And I think there's a big difference between what we do and who we are. And so I think both in looking at our own behavior and in calling out or calling in other people to examine their behavior, there's a lot of power in looking at our actions without making accusations about who people are. So saying, oh, wow, what you just said felt, felt a little racist to me and I don't like how that sounded versus you are a racist and there's nothing you can do to change that character trait about yourself. And so I think <laughs> you know, for myself, saying, but I'm not a racist. Like I didn't, I didn't mean to say it like that, but that doesn't change the fact that I might've said something that was racist, that I might've said something that was sexist, even though I am a woman, that, my, that I might've done something that was homophobic, even though I am a queer woman. So I think thinking about all of the ways and which we can do or say things that we don't mean or that we don't intend to be harmful and still acknowledge that those things still can be harmful, but it doesn't make me a bad person. It just means that I did something that was bad. Um, and that's okay to say, and we're all human, but we need to be able to say it. You know, you, you're making me think of, of a coming out process, actually, because I, I remember when I was coming out to myself first before coming out to everybody else around me as, as being gay, that I had a real fear of being uh, labeled or um, I don't even know what, you know, somehow seen as less than or something. And, and so my response would was very angry. My, my first initial coming out expression was to say, I'm gay, deal with it, you know, that kind of a thing. And then to realize that I didn't have to do that because that's just a part of me was my own coming out process. And I had a similar experience with this whole white privilege stuff because it was during my time at Community Tampa Bay, and I think it was, it wasn't any town, but it was a, it was a seminar that we were having like a weekend session. And there were some really tough questions asked when I first realized and I got a glimpse of, oh, I do have white privilege. Oh, I don't think I like that. Oh, well, it's not my fault. Oh, well, how can I take ownership and do, so there's this process of acceptance and understanding and ownership and that we go through and it's not necessarily of, of what you just said, um, Sarah, it's not necessarily beneficial to anybody to just point your finger and say, so you are, so you need to change because that's not necessarily going to shift the meter. So coming to, to you, Sam, you've experienced discrimination in a way that I can't begin to understand or even really creatively try to act as if. So how do you, what do you tell yourself? How do you, um, how do you live with others, other people? What's your fundamental philosophy in dealing with a, a white privileged society? I mean, for the most part, if at that moment I'm wearing my education hat on, then, you know, I tend to bridge. But um, I'm also, I'm, I'm well aware of the different identities that I wear in, in this society, right? 
um, sometimes uh, my color presents itself before my sexuality. Sometimes my sexuality presents itself before my color. Sometimes my gender performance presents itself before sexuality or color and vice versa. Um, my religious identity rarely presents itself unless someone no notices the ink that I have on my body or it is revealed in some manner of conversation. Wow. So I am well aware of these multiple identities and I'm always well aware of the space that I'm in. I make it a habit to be well-researched about the space that I'm placing myself in and who is in those spaces, right? And that is solid preparation for what conversations come there on. I also am very um, accepting of the fact that I don't owe anybody an explanation mm. or that I am not required to inform and educate anyone, right? While uh, that is definitely a huge part of who I am, it is not necessarily who I am 24-7 because you exhaust after a certain point of time. You're done for the day, for the day at a certain point sure. time, right? And so I take that upon myself. And it has it is, it is been a long process of becoming to recognize that I don't owe anybody an explanation for my life or any part of my identity. Um, and oftentimes you're not, that, that is also part of that, that privilege is that people feel entitled to your life and who you are and those explanations, yes? I want to know more about you. I am trying to learn why would you, why will you not reveal everything about yourself, right? Wow. That entitlement comes into play with that. Wow. So knowing when to curb that and how to curb that is a lesson on its own. It's definitely a difficult one. And um, many, I, I'm, I personally believe that all emotions are valid. So if a person of color wants to tackle that with, I owe you absolutely nothing. Please step away from me. I think that is a completely valid response to, well, let's sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk about it. It's an mm -hmm. equally valid response. But I think um, allowing myself to have all of those responses and recognizing that all of those responses are valid in and of that moment um, and in and of several moments, however I see fit, I own that conversation. That conversation is owned only by me. And therefore, I will conduct it as I see necessary wow. or convenient. I think yeah. to Sam's point, at the end of the day, I can stop talking about racism whenever I want. Uh, you know, and I can conversation, I can go to sleep, I can not read any articles about racism this week, I cannot have any conversations with white people about racism. Uh, walking through the world, that is never something that they can turn off. It is never something that they get to opt out of when it is draining, when it is uh, frustrating, when it is angering, that's never something uh, that they get to choose how other people are interacting with them because of the color of their skin or any other aspect of their identity. Uh, and so I think for me, that's something that when I was confronting my own entitlement and hearing the stories of people of color, like Sam was talking about, that's something that I really tried to remember is that, you know, I, I have the privilege of not having to talk about this and not ha having, frankly, um, and so I think that ability to opt in and out of conversations about race, you know, if it gets too uncomfortable, I can be like, well, let's just agree to disagree and walk away. And that's yeah. something that I can do and to know that then I can walk down the street and still look the way that I do is village that I receive, however unearned that it might be. Um, so I think that's an important point, you know, when I think about some of the things that Sam shared that I also had to unlearn, you know, as the other person in some of those equations. Well, and I've already, I've always, so 
I've always considered Sarah one of my teachers since we worked together. Jen became one a few years ago when we met. And now I'm going to tell you, Sam, you have now become a teacher for my, of mine. And I thank you for that. Something that you thank said. Thank you so much, Ivana. Well, I, you just said that you're always aware and prepared of the spaces that you put yourself in. And that was another aha for me because I don't have to prepare, right? To your point, Sarah, I have, I, I don't have to prepare myself for the spaces that I'm in as a white woman. However, I will say that also gave me another aha because there was a time prior to coming out to myself and to my community that I was living life as a straight woman, dating men, interacting in a very straight capacity. And from that standpoint, the only, the, the only experience that I had for discrimination were the occasional cat call or gestures, the, the gender discrimination, right, that, that we face. Um, when I came out and started dating women, I realized I was very aware of walking down the street and if there was a car passing, was I holding hands? I was never, ever aware of that in dating a man. Never. I had no, I didn't have to because the privilege that I had as a straight person was knowing, hey, this is considered normal that everybody accepted that behavior. It's a straight world, kind of straight privilege if we can go with that. So I've never even thought about having to pre prepare for where I'm going or who I'm with, depending upon the event, the party, the, the, the business I'm visiting. That's, that was huge. That's, I think these layers of, of, of privilege are, of white privilege are very interesting because the more we actually can sit and talk with somebody else about their life, um, and the more that we can actually listen to the daily activities or things that they go through, like Sam just ex expressed, can really help us better understand and define what white privilege is. Does anyone have any other comments for that? Because I can move us into the next realm. Okay. That was, um, wow, that was very powerful. Thank you, Sam. So you talked about bridging the difference and and knowing that there are uh, challenges that we face just in the day-to-day. -day. How can we, in where we are, how can we understand uh, and take ownership for the things that we're seeing? Sarah, let me go back to what you said about you expect your male friends to not do catcalls, to treat women with respect, to not take part in lewd jokes and that kind of a thing, whether they're in your presence or they're not. How can we have those types of conversations or how can we actually do that ourselves, um, excuse me, with, with other folks about white privilege when we hear those, when we see something that is definitively white privilege, how do you, how do you work that in to the, to the experience that you're having? Absolutely. I think the first thing for me was to start to become aware of the spaces that I was in in a very different way than, than Sam was referencing, but being aware of if I walk into a space and I'm in a space of all white people, what does that say about the spaces that I'm in? Huh. Uh, if the community that I live in is all white, if all of the meetings that I'm getting invited to are all white folks, um, where are the spaces that I am getting to interact with diverse groups? Um, where am I really getting a chance to build relationships with people who don't look like me? Because relationships are really going to be the thing uh, that forces me, frankly, to empathize with someone else's experience. And so if I'm not 
accessing uh, opportunities to get a chance to, to interact with people who don't look like me, um, you know, that's going to be a different experience. So I think then looking at that, if I'm in an all white environment or a majority white environment, um, there's really an opportunity there to interrupt some of the implicit bias that Jen mentioned earlier uh, in a really powerful way. I think oftentimes uh, people who are white will say things to other white people that they would never say to a person of color. And I don't mm. mean racial epithets and, and um, things that most people would identify as overt racism. I mean things like when I shared with someone in high school that I was in a magnet program and that there were no black males in my graduating class, they said, oh, well, they probably just didn't get into the program or try as hard. Wow. I think things like that, ideas like that are very common. And so I think when we hear things like that, we have an opportunity to say, tell me more about why you think that. Hmm. Or that read me the wrong way a little bit. I want to explore a little bit about where that idea is coming from. And I think to do it in a way that, like you said, isn't like, I'm gay, deal with it, but it's a little bit more like, <laughs> Tell me more interested to hear your perspective because here's where I'm coming from and, and I don't like that. And then I think when we are in diverse spaces and we're sharing spaces with communities of color, when we are interacting with our friends of color and our colleagues of color, uh, listening is by far the biggest thing that I, I would share as a white ally. Uh, listen to their experience, trust their experience, uh, and to challenge the assumption that I feel like I was definitely taught implicitly or explicitly that being called racist worse than experiencing racism. And so I think if we're able to interrupt that to say what you're experiencing, bad and all, but I'm more offended that you're calling me a racist in this moment, if we just take a step back and access some humility and are able to listen and tap into those experiences, then I think we can move on to, you know, uh, different types of action steps to be a white ally things like giving space to people of color or not of color you know when i'm in spaces you know where those folks aren't kind of looking around and, and noting that and asking um you know if they are noticing the same thing um jen does a great job of that in the spaces that she's invited to you know asking people why isn't there more diverse representation in in these spaces um something that i actively had to realize about myself was, you know, a person of color would say something and I would find myself paraphrasing the exact same thing, I hear myself speak. And I learned through some of my experiences of listening that that is silencing. And that, wow. you know, when I say the same thing that somebody else is saying and people listen to me and not that other person, um, that that wow. can be a really harmful experience. So I think um, interrupting implicit bias uh, and listening to, to our colleagues of color when they're sharing about their experiences are too easy action steps, uh, you know, I think in unlearning white privilege. Mm -hmm. And you, you're talking about that, just the, the listening uh, to the experience. There are, and Jenna, I want to come, come back over to you, there are a number of ways that we can actually have that dialogue because, as we said, we're really a culture of white privilege. We have it, we have it within our framework. And so, you know, tell me about what that can look like. How do we recognize our own uh, contribution, eh, is that the right word? Participation in, uh, I, think, I think it's called institutional uh, racism or institutional bigotry or in something about the pervasiveness of, of our culture. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really just a kind of piggybacking off of, you know, what Sarah and Sam have already said. I, I think the, ver the very first step is to acknowledge and notice um and 
to just notice every space that you step into, every place you are going. Um, you know, for me, I look at uh, sort of what are my spheres of influence, you know, and what are the different spaces that I move in. So as a nonprofit executive director, um, I often have the opportunity, you know, I'm invited to meetings with other executive directors. And when I look around the room, um, I can name, you know, 10 executive directors of color right now, um, if I wanted to, who are incredibly influential and talented. But often when I go into spaces where other nonprofit CEOs or executive directors are invited, those individuals and others who look like them are not there. Mm -hmm. um, so that is an example of, you know, what we might call white privilege or institutional racism, where we are so conditioned, you know, as white people to be in spaces with all people who look like us and without necessarily questioning why that is or um, we're trying, trying to, to interrupt that uh, because I don't have to because I was already invited to the table. Um, and so I think the first step is sort of becoming, you know, conditioning yourself to notice those things um, and again, to not be defensive about it you know, me being invited to that space to the exclusion of a colleague of mine, you know, who is a person of color doesn't mean that I don't deserve to be there. It just means that my colleague who is a person of color deserves to be there as well. Um, and so it's this notion of, I, I feel like, so the acknowledgement is key. I think the other piece is saying that, you know, acknowledging that white privilege exists on an institutional and interpersonal level doesn't take anything away from me necessarily. You know, mm -hmm. it just means that, um, again, like I benefit from this. And, you know, as white people advocating um, for making space and room and amplifying the voice of individuals of color in our community doesn't necessarily have to take anything away from me. It just means right. that I have to learn how to step aside sometimes, you know, and how to step back. Uh, and if I truly want to, you know, be about what I say I'm about, which is equality and and I, you know, I, I, many of us say that we believe in equality and we believe in freedom for all and we do believe in justice. And again, I, I, I firmly believe that most of us do hold those ideals. What does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis? And mm -hmm. where in our spheres of influence are we advocating for that? Because the truth is, you know, again, as white people, we are, we are in spaces often um, where we can engage that discussion, you know, with our colleagues and with our peers in a way that people of color can't because yeah. they are simply in a different position. And again, like Sam said, it's also not, you know, Sam's job to walk mm -hmm. into every space she's in is maybe the, you know, the one person of color in that room or among the minority, you know, people of color in that room and to educate all the white people around her, even if they were to listen, you know, which often we wouldn't necessarily do. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think it's, again, so it's acknowledging, um, learning how to not be defensive about that and then active role in interrupting, you know, that, that interrupting just that, that constant, you know, white privilege that we see around us and then advocating for, you know, space and voice um, for people who don't look like us. And I have wow. never personally had an experience, frankly, I mean, again, you know, and this is benefiting, you know, I, I benefit from this, that I can be in a space and in a way that, you know, that I hope is bridging and that I hope is um, diplomatic, but powerful at the same time. And I continue to be invited into spaces. So I am not losing anything. Um, by saying, you know, looking around and saying, hey, um, I can't help but notice that everyone around this table looks like me. And I think that this conversation would really benefit um, from having voices in the room, um, from people, you know, who are people of color, um, from more women, <laughs> you know, from people with different um, cultural and ethnic and, you know, national backgrounds. I mean, I just think that um, our conversation would be enriched. And, and I have yet uh, to be disinvited to a space because I have brought that up.
Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, there's a lot in that. And I want to, uh, in part three, really kind of dive a little bit further into, since this is such a large issue, how can we make that difference? I think two takeaways um, that both that both Sarah and Jen said just now are, you know, we can have this conversation without being defensive about it. Um, and Jen, something that you said, just because I'm there doesn't mean I don't deserve to be there, but it does mean that others as well deserve to be. So it's not about, it's not about the taking away. So instead of coming at it like a, well, 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 we can, we can say, okay. And, and to really listen, you made me think Jen of, um, part of my management training uh, with a couple of different large companies, Royal Caribbean and T-Mobile, Royal Caribbean especially because it's so intercultural on board a ship. Uh, the driving, one of the core values with that aspect of living among 20, 25 different cultures uh, and people from all nationalities is to, as a manager, respect the fact that your team is as strong as all of what your team is bringing to the table. So it's not just about me and the people who look like me on my team driving that force from a manager's perspective to get the most, to have the strongest team that I can. And I, and I actually supervise a staff of 80 and they came from 16 different countries. That was just within my area as being a cruise director. I needed to be able to reach out and understand and welcome the differences that sat at my table within my department. And I think that's so true sociologically and also uh, culturally within our neighborhoods, within our schools, within our communities and our, and our offices that it, it, we can't take advantage of the strength of America. You know, I grew up realizing America was a melting pot. Well, we're not a melting pot to blend into one color. We're here to appreciate all the colors all of the, well, and frankly, the cultures. And just to kind of jump in, Luann, I mean, again, you know, if you're, if, if people listening are, are data people, right. I mean, there is data out there um, that shows, for example, like you're talking about from a leadership perspective um, in a workplace, you know, the data shows that diverse work environments um, do better. Yeah. Uh, they profit more. They have more employee engagement, less employee turnover, and their bottom line looks better because of the diversity within their organizations. Um, there is data that demonstrates that students who are able to actively participate in diverse and inclusive uh, classrooms do better academically than their peers who don't have that same exposure. There is data that shows that law enforcement officers who are exposed to programs that highlight diversity and are able to interact with the diverse communities that they serve in productive ways actually do better as law enforcement officers than those who are sort of continued, you know, their condition in sort of that old way, um, you know, that, that old style of law enforcement. And so there is data upon data mm -hmm. that, that shows from an academic, you know, perspective that we benefit as a society and individually from inviting diversity and inclusion lives. Wow. And I think that yeah. so often the messages that we hear, particularly, you know, sort of, there's been, there's so many messages about fear and about how we should fear the other, and how, what will be taken away from me if I invite diversity and inclusion into my life? What will be taken away from me if someone else maybe could benefit from the same privilege that I have? Um, and frankly, that's just rhetoric, because yeah. study after study after study shows 
um, that we all do better. Now, it doesn't mean that I won't ever have to sacrifice, you know, in the interest of perhaps allowing for some of that equity. Um, but that is what life is about, you know, and that is what, you know, as humans, we learn how to do that to compromise and to sacrifice. And we talk about wanting the greater good. Um, and so when we think about these discussions, we really have the opportunity to sort of put, you know, put our actions where our values are, so to speak, um, and to really, you know, be about what we say we're about. Put our actions where our values are. That's awesome. So again, I want to pay homage and say thank you to my three teachers now, Jen Yeagley, Executive Director with Community Tampa Bay, Sam Obeyed, my newest teacher with Anytown Coordinator, Sarah Ogde, Program Director, and we are going to come back to you again for part three. This one is really going to be looking about how do we make a difference productively in ways that are beneficial to everyone and not necessarily accusatory. We're not even going to talk about accusatory because that's gone. That's done. We want to talk about being the bridge and how, how we can actually make a difference and impact our community. So that wraps up this part two, Spotlight on White Privilege, part two. We'll see you next time.